Welcome to Words on Whiskey, episode 58. We've got a very important and auspicious guest with us this evening. We're going to be discussing all things IWA, Irish Whiskey Association, related to proposed amendments to the technical file, which will basically lay out future for Irish whiskey over the next many years. Our guest this evening is none other than Mr. John Quinn, probably better known as being Global Brand Ambassador at W. Grants Tullamore, and he's agreed to come onto the show and fill us in on exactly what is happening with the Irish Whiskey Association in relation to amendments to the technical bar. Uh, we're honoured to have Chairman of the Irish Whiskey Association, Mr. John Quinn. Good evening, sir. Don't be honoured. Give me a break. Uh, <laughs> well, we are. We are. We well, don't get chairman that often. How are you keeping? Yeah, great. Thanks, sir. Just in good form. We got healthy, which That's is the main uh, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a holiday in Portugal uh, 10 days ago, and uh, I'm still living off the, the benefits of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say I can see the tan, but I think you must have had two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very good time, indoors and outdoors, I can tell you. We had a lot of golf, we had a good bit of swimming, and uh, we, we did some what we call trade auditing. Well, I was oh. calling it trade auditing. The lads didn't know what that meant, but I think they get the picture. <laughs> so, well, look, thank you everybody for joining us on the show. I think it, it's an important topic, and if you do have questions or comments about the technical file, please do put them in. I think it'd be great to get some debate going about this and get some opinions. So, John, firstly, your role as chairman of the Irish Whiskey Association came into force at the beginning of the year, and yeah. probably the most one of the most challenging years we've had with the COVID situation going on. And other factors as well. There's the Brexit situation to deal with as well. Could you tell us a little bit firstly about your role within the Irish Whiskey Association, how it came about uh, and what it entails and what you are responsible for? Yeah, so I'm, a couple of years ago, the previous chairman was um, David Stapleton of Connacht he, he asked me, would I step up as vice chair to him with a view to be to me being the chairman uh, two years after being vice chairman. So I was delighted and honoured to do that. Um, uh, the company was very happy for me to be the Tullamore Duke person uh, that would do that. It could have been anybody from me and Grant, really. Um, it was, I think there was a bit of a sense that um, maybe it would be me uh, within the Irish Swiss Association and the, as I say, William Grant were delighted to, to allow that happen. Uh, it's a significant thing because it takes a lot of my time uh, away from my uh, paid role as so um, that, that was great. And, and in terms of, so it's a two-year gig after you've been vice chair for two years, you then you're chair for two years. One year, you know, just about to be completed now in December, um, and then it goes through to December 22 when a new chair will take over. And, and that would be the vice president, who is James Doherty. The vice, yeah, the vice chairman is James Doherty from Steve League, exactly. And it was to my, it was in my gift to find uh, somebody who would from the smaller companies every two years it becomes a, a bigger company and a smaller company etc so it was within my gift to talk to people and um, I identified James as somebody who has a great affinity with the small producers a great understanding of the business globally and also has a good understanding of what makes uh, the bigger companies tick as well so I was happy to uh, ask James and I was delighted to say yes he's a very brilliant man actually uh, for those who don't know him they will know him in the future he's a very very brilliant man at loads of levels and so the, the, the role then of the chairman is, is like, I, I sometimes say to people, I'm really eye candy on the, but then nobody believes that. So I have to change that line. And it's, it's more though that, um, 
I, as chair, I kind of oversee in a way that is uh, not detached from the everyday, but keep, keeping an eye on the way the, the organization conducts itself in terms of where the priorities are. Um, and I sit with, particularly with William Lavelle, his team, Caroline Madigan, and Mary Mooney. I mean, they're, they're the people I would spend most time with, but particularly with William, understanding that where do we need to go? What's the next five years going to look like in order to get there? What do we have to do this year and the year after, etc. And um, it's it's driven by that executive, not really by me. I, I sit in a kind of a in a, an overseeing capacity, and if I can, if I have anything to offer in terms of inspiring any of the thoughts going forward, then I can do that, obviously. But the, it's a, it's a pretty good team, to say the least. It's actually a very good team of people that that drive the the whole association forward. And obviously, the the membership has grown hugely over the last uh, number of years. Forty six members now, yeah, and it's the the number of members is significant, but I guess what we represent is even more significant. I mean, we represent. I think it's going to go something like 98% of the sales of Irish whiskey, 95% of the production of Irish whiskey, and 96% of the employees in the Irish whiskey business. You know, So it's a very representative body. Actually, I've heard it said that is the most representative trade body in Ireland and possibly in the British Isles and indeed possibly in Europe, that it represents so many people. And then there are people who aren't members who are actively working really well in the Irish whiskey industry and doing brilliant work on their own in their own way. And they've chosen for whatever reason not to be members and we, we recognize the value of them too, of course, and, and the value of what they're doing. Yeah, of course. And, and you know, we've seen the formation of, of a number of other bodies, I guess, over the last uh, couple of years. And I'm sure that they will have their voice as well in their technical file and also in suggestions to help develop the, the category. But yeah, um, we're working actively in the industry, so they will have thoughts and feelings about what's right and what's appropriate and in the way that we have, obviously. Yeah. So in terms of actually uh, what's happened this year, let's not talk about the technical part at the moment, but in terms of the challenges that have been there with COVID, obviously all meetings, I presume, have gone virtual. I've seen a lot of workshops, which is a lot of credit to you all to organize the workshops. I've attended a couple a couple of them, which have been fantastic. It's all been, it's all been sorry to interrupt you, but it, yeah, it has all been virtual because it had to be. But I think in a, in a funny kind of a way, Sergius, that's worked to our advantage. And I say that because if we were having a workshop in Middleton or in Tullamore or in Teelings in Dublin or a name, Liberties in Dublin, name it as Surrey, um, there, were, there would be people who couldn't get there for, for reasons of geography as much, and time as much as anything else. Whereas with online, everyone can get there. You know, you go from your kitchen to your office or your sitting room or your bedroom or whatever it happens to be. And you're, and you're there, you're in Cork or you're in Bushmills or wherever it happens to be. You know what I mean? So yeah. wherever there's anything going on virtually, you can be there without the challenge of time and distance. Yes, and, and you can I'm be there in your shirt and your pajama bottoms. And uh... don't, I'm not even going to move my camera. And gave us an opportunity then. We had a lot of stuff online, as you said. We had a lot of uh, webinars, seminars. Um, people contributing from different markets, from Africa, from Asia, from Australia, um, people contributing with different expertise, you know, laboratory people, um, yeah. it's, uh, and, and people talking about sustainability. So we had a huge amount of stuff going on that everybody yeah. could go into. It was, it was really super. I mean, the other um, role then that the IWA take on is 
protection of the GI and protection of, of the category Irish whiskey. And they have gained a recognition of the Irish whiskey trademark essentially in many, many markets now. And that's ongoing with the legal department. So I, I'm sure that takes a lot of the resources that would be required. It, it, it's, it's a huge amount of resources. Um, there's no doubt about it. I think in the last five years, we spent a million euros in, in, in the interest of protecting Irish whiskey, registering yeah. and protecting Irish whiskey. So the, the members have contributed a million euros to this effort. And so you have to say that that's, it's not just a, a commitment from the heart. That's hard cash that the yeah. members have put front. And, and, and what we do, of course, is we, we register Irish whiskey in wherever it needs to be registered, where we don't have protection for the category, and we register the GI. It's, yeah. it's recognized in so many countries now. We're, we're in the process now. I think it's South Africa, Australia, and India are in the process of registration at the moment. I mean, we are selling whiskies in those markets already. The thing is, are they protected by law? And by registering the GI in these markets, as we have in so many others, that means it is protected by law. And our members, and not just our members, obviously anyone in the business who wants to launch an Irish whiskey in any market where we've instigated the protection procedures, then they can launch with confidence, knowing that the category is protected by the by the GI that, that's been you know registered by um, our members, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the other thing that you do is you actually promote Irish whiskey collectively abroad, taking part in trade shows, dealing with government. Yeah. So that's hugely and that was particularly challenging this year. I mean, because there were no trade shows in the last 12 months, obviously, and there was nobody traveling. So what we did do is we had some uh, online uh, seminars and webinars talking about Irish whiskey and where we, where we invited, for example, um, whiskey writers or tourism writers or foodie type writers. We also invited the Irish Embassy to host some of these and, and, and that's a great uh, fillip to the, to the opportunity the business, but it's also a great opportunity for uh, the Irish Embassy to participate in promoting all uh, in the, the category, let's say. So, um, again, the online thing served us well because we could get, I mean, John King from CNN was on one of the webinars uh, that, that won the um, online seminars, let's call it that. Um, and he was listening and talking Irish whiskey. So when you get those kinds of influencers, it's huge for the category. Yeah. And I suppose you're reaching an audience online that might be, you know, impossible to reach almost any other way. I, I've told this story before, but I'll tell you now, uh, you've probably heard of Kevin Piggott, a young upstart in the Irish whiskey business, but he and I do work together a bit. And uh, we did a, we did a webinar, a seminar with um, a, a group of Chilean bartenders and it was set up for Chilean bartenders, but it was open to anyone who wanted to, from Latin America, who wanted to call in, let's say. And we did a thing where I talked about Irish whiskey and Kevin talked about cocktails and 357 bartenders from Latin America, from Tierra del Fuego, you know, all the way up to Mexico, the northern the, the, the Tijuana in Mexico they, and all countries in between called in to that. And like, if, if I had traveled to Santiago to Chile or wherever and asked for bartenders to come to a tasting, it would have been great. I would have got 25 one night and 45 another and, you know, whatever. Yes. But we just only fifty seven people calling in one evening. Like, yeah. it was a four-hour gig. We didn't have to leave Dublin. That's the benefits that we can see from online. And the same way that you're talking about, you know, the, the people calling in from different parts of the world to listen to whiskey guys, not me, but any of the other brands of whiskey, 
talking about their product. It was a great opportunity for the members. Just goes to show the interest that's out there that can be tapped if you go online, I guess, as well. Here, here. And Irish whiskey, like, I have to be careful with this, but it's still sexy. It's been sexy for a while now, but it's still sexy in the context of uh, drinks writers. Um, mm. You know, it's still something that's, I don't want to say novel, but it's still something that generates a, a little interest in beyond the normal let's talk about a spare category Irish whiskey for whatever reason in a way that maybe Ireland does generates a, an interest level where they want to participate and they want to write yeah I mean I think it is very much interwoven with brand Ireland as well to go hand in hand to some extent but certainly there's a, a great buzz about it and, and that's the other thing that you helped as well in the, the tourism initiatives that have taken place over the last few months and local tourism being important for distillery. Yeah, I mean, we, we have um, we have these um, uh, um, Ireland 360, you know, the, 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 um, the, and that's all about creating a tourism product which has got all these, uh, an opportunity for people to visit the, the tourism product that is Irish whiskey distilleries. And, and now we've just instituted a pilot thing of a, a kind of a passport for the distilleries you might visit. So it's, it's wonderful. And that, that was targeted this year at Irish people, the staycationers for want for of a better term, to encourage them and, and, and work for a lot of people. Now, a lot of the time we were closed, places were closed, people couldn't visit. So whatever opportunity was there, we, we did our best to maximize the opportunity for, for our members. Ironically, I, I think this, the association has become more accessible and more open in lockdown. You know, uh, yeah. we know a lot more about what's going on. There's been more transparency than ever before, I think. And of course, yeah. credit to yourself and William and the rest of the team as to what's happening. But I think not, we never would have wanted it to be any other way. So for whatever reason, if it seemed that, that there was folk and dagger stuff going on, it didn't seem that way to us. But if that's how it seemed outside, then I'm glad it's changed and we, it should continue to change. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, one of the most uh, significant things that I, I want to discuss with you is proposed amendments to the technical file. And, if, you know, if we go back in the history, I suppose, first definition of Irish whiskey would have been 1950 and then 1980 would have been the first semblance of, of a technical file. The current technical file dates back to 2014, I think ratified mm -hmm. in 2019. You know, and there's been a lot of discussion about it, of course. And, you know, there's been discussion in as to why wasn't this included and why wasn't that included. Mm -hmm. And firstly, let's talk about what the technical file is. Who owns it? Who creates it? Who ultimately has responsibility for it? And how does that work? So the technical file was created by the Irish whiskey industry, as you said, finally in 2014. I mean, it started being discussed in 2008. Uh, it took six years to get it to the point where it would be submitted uh, to the Department of Agriculture and then submitted to Europe for GI ratification. So in, in, in that sense, it's owned by the industry. Um, and, the, and the industry came together, all the members of the industry came together back then at a time when it wasn't easy for many people. Smaller guys might have felt they were dominated by bigger guys. Bigger guys might have felt that smaller guys had had interests that were different from theirs, etc. So, I mean, you talk to one of the greats of Irish whiskey, uh, Noel Sweeney, and he'll tell you that it was a real challenge to get everybody to sit in an agreeable format, you know what I mean, and, and to agree on things. And um, he would have been one of the champions, and there were you know, champions from Peter Moorhead, probably from Irish Sisters and 
John Chamley was with uh, William Grant or with, with Tullamore Drew at that time. So there are different champions who came together to make that happen. And it was quite an achievement for that document to be produced and presented and agreed upon. As I say, six years. So it was a, yeah. it was a, lot, of, it was a lot of discussion and debate to get that. Or 20 pages? No, it's actually a lot longer than 20 pages. Well, but, but in any case, it, it was quite, a, quite an achievement to get it done. But it was a different market. And, you know, we look back and, and it's very easy to be critical uh, going back, looking back, I won't say I haven't been critical of it, but, you know, if, if you go back and look at it and you say, okay, there were far less players in the market, the difference between the big players and the small players was huge. Uh, and I suppose Irish whiskey at the time hadn't really reached the same levels that it has now. And, and obviously, we're talking about 40 distilleries plus now. So I guess it, to some extent it was of its time and, and maybe perhaps perceived as being suited towards the larger players. But now I know you've been working from the beginning of the year to look at the new technical profile proposals that you're putting together. So firstly, the technical profile exists. It has to be approved by government, is it? It has to be approved by the Department of Agriculture and Food. Yes, by government. They are, if you like, the custodians of it. And the role of the technical file is it's meant to reflect the historical significance and the ways of working of the Irish whiskey industry. And has to have integrity in that sense. And it defines Irish whiskey with a, with a nod to traditionality, more than a nod to traditionality, but encompassing and understanding and recognizing traditionality in the industry. And that, and that technical file then informs, as I said, the application for a GI status, which absolutely demands that there is a, a definition, that there is a, an understanding of what makes Irish, what makes Irish whiskey what it is, and that therefore deviations away from that would not be acceptable in, within GI status, let's say. So, I mean, that has two purposes then, is one, to clarify what is allowed to be produced and how it's named, but also to try and ensure the quality as well, I presume, of, of, of the product, which is the, the most significant part. Well, of course. I mean, the, 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 the quality credentials of Irish whiskey have to be protected in, in every way in terms of defining what it, what it is that makes Irish whiskey, what it is that, that, how you define the making of one category or one subcategory and another subcategory, etc. And they have to be written down and, and indeed where. And then uh, the, the, the recognition then as time moved on that there were flaws within the original document and that probably as a working document it would always be that there would be a plan to revisit that and see if it's still fit for purpose. I understand there were kind of time constraints as well in terms of getting the GI, getting a technical file in with the GI on time as well. But if we look at the relationship between three documents I'm particularly interested in, one would be the verification process, which is run by Revenue and HMRC. Then there is the geographical indication, and then there is the technical file. What's the relationship between those three documents? So the technical file is written to define what makes Irish whiskey what it is and how it's made and what are the processes. The verification file is exactly what that is, which is that we will verify that distillers and producers are doing, are making Irish whiskey in accordance with the various different sec sections in the technical file. So in other words, the verification file verifies that the technical file is being carried out by the yeah. producer. And then those two together are submitted 
with a view to the geographical indication being awarded to Irish whiskey because it has a clear definition and there is a very clear verification process. Okay, so it is possible to change your technical file without having to reapply for GI or is that reapplied? So essentially, it's not possible to change it dramatically, to make massive changes to what would be understood to be the integrity of the document and to change significantly how Irish whiskey would be made would taste, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you're making massive changes, then it goes. It, it's not a member state discussion. It's an EU discussion because you want you're going to have to have the GI status questioned and revised. Whereas when you're making changes that that tweak or that redefine or that refine, if you like, the interpretation of what's done, then they're seen as not significant and not massively significant to the. So the integrity of the document, and therefore they would be retained, the responsibility for those would be retained within the member state, let's say. Yeah. And that, that the member state would accept that, and the geographical indication would be uh, kept intact as a result. Okay. So the Irish Whiskey Association have put together these uh, proposed amendments, and we're, we're going to go through those and, and talk mm. about them. What's the next process? So you've made your submissions. What happens next? What happens is that, and it, it's a little bit unclear in the sense that, in terms of timeline, that the Department of Agriculture receives our documents, as does DEFRA, the department in the UK, because it's an all-island industry, obviously. They receive our proposal to change the technical file. So if we just talk about agriculture and food, they will look at that and assess it in terms of its, its suitability in terms of recognizing the integrity of the points that are being made with a view to the changes and saying, okay, that makes sense. And we understand why that is, etc. And then they would see that as something that would be either amenable for uh, full acceptance or not. And they would offer it then for other people to, if you like, to oppose um, the, this for any reason and to put forward other proposals. And then anyone can then, you don't even have to be in the industry to make proposals that are different to ours. And then after that, uh, they would set timeline for themselves to accept the, the document or send it back for revision. Okay. So the timelines in terms of, uh, you know, assuming that the amendments are accepted, are we talking about something taking a couple of years to go through or something? No, um, I think one of the things you can't do is, um, because I've, I've asked this question myself, and I don't think we can necessarily um, uh, define the timelines because A, a it's down to the right of agriculture capacity to spend time with this, etc. They'll obviously want to consult with the industry and we'll want to consult with them and explain to them the thinking behind the document if they need any they may well want to discuss with DEFRA, for example. They may well want to invite alternative views and consider those, etc. So depending on the volume of, uh, uh, of offerings and the volume of um, consultations that they have to get involved in, that could take an awful long time or it could take a short time. But I think I was asking myself recently, are we talking three to six months? Are we talking two years. Nobody can really say, but I would, I'd be hoping it's, it would be in the former somewhere around three, three to six months. Yeah, excellent. And then in terms of retrospectively applying it, will that happen? Is it retrospectively applied? So, for example, if somebody had produced something that would be considered technically illegal at the moment, would that be retrospectively applied or is it only going forward? 
I think that would be something that they would have to address themselves. And I, I, I don't know the answer to that, sir. Just no point in me pretending I do. But I guess um, if something is is produced in the market and, and is, is produced but not necessarily marketed, um, mm -hmm. it would be that that could be acceptable because it, it reflects what's in the new technical file for one better description. But I, I and you know there could be grandfathered in situations, etc. But I, I really wouldn't feel competent to answer that because I think that's something that hasn't been discussed with them yet. Right. That okay. they need to come to terms with, yeah. In terms of the mechanics then, I understand there was a technical subcommittee set up for that. How were they appointed and what was their role? Actually, to be fair, there wasn't a technical subcommittee set up to do this. Every two years, when there's a change of chairman and there's a change of uh, vice chair, etc., there's also a change of the subcommittees. So a new technical subcommittee was set up last December with, for the next two years. And it was that technical subcommittee that would address many of the technical issues that the previous technical committee would address, for example. They were given a brief that it's time to open and look at the technical file and to see if it's still fit for purpose. Given all that we know now, that wasn't known in 2014, for example. And so they would have taken that task on board right from January right through. And it was a big, big job for them, obviously, to sit over, I think they sat over a 16-week period. They had, you know, like eight meetings of a couple of hours each meeting with a lot of 15 different companies contributing, small and big. So there was a huge amount of executive opinion of both big and small, but also a huge amount of expertise contributing into that. Yeah. Well, it's quite an achievement when you think about it with the number of members to actually reach a consensus that uh, all the members are happy with. And uh, I think it shows yeah. that the Irish Whiskey Association can work. You know, it's not levered one way necessarily or another. And, uh, and, and, and look, the, the term that was used for me was the collegiality um, of, of the industry. That it almost unprecedented in, in, in terms of industry bodies in Ireland. Certainly that's the feedback we get that to, to represent so much of the industry and, and to come together in ways that were, you know, were challenging because there are people with different views as there were back in 2008. Um, didn't take us yeah. six years at this time, but um, to, to, to bring together a document where the, there was unanimity on that document in the end was, was fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure, you know, with the way the demographics of the industry have changed in terms of scale and the number of new distilleries, it could have been quite easy, I suppose, to reach stumbling blocks and, and not want to move forward. What was the mm -hmm. driving force for the changes to be made in the first place? Were they consumer-driven or were they industry-driven? I would say they're, they're industry-driven. And I don't want to, in some way, dismiss the consumer. But if Joe Bloggs in Glasnevin is the consumer, he wasn't demanding that we change the Irish whiskey technical file. However, there were a lot of people, well-informed people, like, let's take the obvious person, like Fanon Connor, whose research was so full of integrity and whose presentation of that research was so engaging that we all knew that there was a, a there was a need at any time there would have been a need to review it. Um, and last year um, there was a sense of okay let's let's with the new technical committee next year let's let's set that as a task. 
for them to review it. So yes, there would have been, and, and within that technical committee, I sat on one in on one meeting. I didn't sit in on the walk. I wasn't elected. I was, I was sitting in as my role as chair. I was allowed to be a fly on the wall. And when I had an opinion to offer, I was more or less told to shut up. You don't have to say it, which is probably of course. Well, it was, um, it was that they came together and there were times when they had to really dig deep to find uh, agreement on, on issues, but they did. And that's to say it was, it was a wonderful exercise in terms of collegiality of the industry, small and big, from the smallest producers to the biggest. Um, and that's what was great about it. Absolutely. I was, I was really pleased and uh, excited to hear that the, you know, they had reached an agreement and that it was happening. Um, you mentioned earlier on that the technical body is important that it reflected the, the traditionality and the heritage and history of Irish whiskey. And I think with these amendments, I mean, it goes pretty much all the way in terms of fulfilling that requirement. Is there a question as to why it may have been overlooked before, or is it just it was what it was? No, I don't think it was a question of things being overlooked. I think it was a question of there not being the level of expertise available to everybody, the level of research that was available to everybody um, back in the day. It, back in the day, I mean, I don't want to get too prescriptive about this, or I don't, I don't, I don't want to share the flavor. Again, I wasn't sitting in at those meetings, but you know, you would have had big voices um, saying, "This is our way." Well, this is our way, you know, and yeah. you know, it can't be. Yes, it can be, and it, well, here's a tradition. Well, here's another tradition. So the, that that very document of 2014, as I said earlier, was a tremendous achievement, as flawed as it now looks. Yeah. And, you know, the whole adage of, you know, you make your decisions based on the information that you have available at any one time. Um, that was, those were, that was a coming together and uh, a collegiality then that produced a, a, a document that was accepted unanimously. As time moved on and as more people came into the industry and we had the expertise um, being offered to us by, from within and without the industry um, and members and non-members who were saying, put this and what about this, etc. And you, you can't ignore the integrity of somebody who has a doctorate on mash bills. No, no, and I have to say, uh, you know, it, it's maybe a bit obvious because I consider him a good friend as well. I mean, the role that Cunham played was, if not pivotal, hugely significant in, you know, the uptake and, and the awareness, I suppose. You know, even amongst uh, members, I'm sure, of your association, um, a lot of them may not have been aware of a lot of the facts that were unearthed, or a lot of the traditionality that was unearthed. So that certainly played a, a big role, I think, going in this direction. Absolutely. And, and as I said, the integrity of the document gives a, a significant nod to traditionality. So therefore, that has to be, we have to understand the traditionality. And for some people, the traditionality went back to the 1960s. Yes. Some people went back to the 1800s. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. we have to respect all of those views, um, and, and we did. Yeah. I mean, you could argue, and again, I'm, I'm being devil's advocate here and saying, well, look, you know, that was then, this is now, what does a tradition really matter anyway? You know, it's a, a liquid that we drink in a certain way. Obviously, we, we very much pride ourselves on um, having that heritage and being the first out there and, and so forth. But is it that important these days? The traditionality? Yeah. Well, I mean, it actually, not only is it important for the GI, it's, it's required. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. it's required that the recognition of the traditionality of what was informed Irish whiskey history, if you like, that, that that is part of 
your if you like your 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 reason for being and reason for having the GI status is that you are giving due recognition to the traditionality. So um, you know that's something that it's not something that you might want to have. It's you're, you're actually required to have it. Okay. Well, look, I, I, I've done up a slide here just to go through some of the proposed amendments, John. I hope you don't mind if you wouldn't mind going through it with me uh, and sharing it with our audience. So, so I, I did put down proposed technical file amendments. So, obviously referring to the, uh, I hope obviously referring to the. Uh, yeah, and, and for people's information, the word technical file has now been replaced by product specification file. Product specification. So if that, gets, if that gets thrown in for that really technical file, yeah. So look, we're going to start off hard, if you like, and talk about what was the most contentious issue. And I think the most important, because, you know, if we say pot still is unique to Ireland, uh, then it's important that it was defined correctly. And the biggest amendment here is the, the pot still definition, which basically before it was a uh, 30% malt, 30% unmalted barley, and up to 5% other. And I think it was the other that was uh, causing the, the controversy. So the new definition is basically saying, well, now you can have 30, 30, and 30 of other cereals. And I think that's been clarified either further by saying other cereals being rye, wheat, or oats, which may or may not be malted. And then there is a, a, an amendment there to remove the word unpeated from the definition. Um, Anything you can share with us on, on that? You know, it was the, it was the big issue. Um, um, but I think, to be fair, it was, a, it was an agreed recognition that the original document was too restrictive and that it reflected very much a tradition that was in place for the past 50 years, probably. But that, if, had we looked further back and had we looked at the industry as it was developing throughout the 1800s, there were much different mash bills that were not, not widely, but widely used um, and, and different combinations. And I, <clears throat> in, my, in my spare time, I had good conversations with Finan about this because he was, um, he was going through this process in the early stages as well as in the later, later stages. And uh, Finan's tutor happens to be a friend of mine. So we have a lot of reasons why we want to talk to, to each other, etc. But it was clear and, and made abundantly clear to the members that, you know, there was a whole range of mash bills out there. And, 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 and you could, even Finan would have said to me, look, you couldn't write down them all because there were just too many potential combinations, but that a good representation would have included wheat, oats, and rye, and, and would have included, you know, 30, 30, 30 was a pretty good way to go. That would have incorporated largely what happened between sort of the 1850s and the 1960s. So, yes. yeah, and, and, and that's, that was adopted and accepted. And I, I mean, it, it probably was less controversial than you think in the sense that, you know, there were, there were, views on it and to be fair to the biggest distiller of pot still whiskey in this country who has been distilling it from you know the uh, in, in a, as a magnificent spirit and now a magnificent category the guys at Middleton would have had very well founded views on how it would um, how it would look and they would have been also very open to the archival discoveries that they themselves would have made 
in Middleton yeah. in the research, as well as, you know, what Fanon would have, um, and Peter Mulryan and all these other brilliant minds uh, who were bringing their understanding of, uh, of, of that, the historical significance of other Potsdam uh, mash bills. So, it was, not that it was a no-brainer, but um, it took a lot of discussion and it took a lot of people being prepared to accept, etc. On the other hand, there was a lot of recognition that there, there is a historical significance here that we cannot ignore. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, that's, this is the single biggest thing in it from my point of view. But just a quick one there about the removal of the unpeated from the definition. <clears throat> is that just that it didn't recognize that peated whiskey was prominent? So the, the, the fact that the word unpeated was included at all in the first place was back to the original document where there was only one organization producing pots of whiskey and had been for the previous 40 years um, and producing a wonderful spirit, as I said, a great whiskey. Um, and peated didn't come into the, the realm of their historical context and, yeah. and, and that sense because pots of whiskeys were you know, very largely double whiskeys, etc. And there wasn't a lot of peated historical references there. On the other hand, to say uh, unpeated was to to define it in a way that Peter wouldn't be allowed, and that wasn't historically accurate either. So to remove that meant that you could it, it could it could be either Peter or Peter. And I think again that was agreed. Big hats off to the association for actually putting this through it. And a, a lot of champions out there, you know, including Mahili, Charlie, obviously yeah, Shunan right. as well, and a lot of people. So I'll come back to this later because I I want to discuss maybe what does this mean for the consumer? So we'll, we'll come back to it, yeah. but let's talk about grain Irish whiskey. Um, grain Irish whiskey, you find has been produced in a column still, but they're talking about removing the 30% malted barley limitation that exists on that because there has been historical context that has shown that, you know, greater than 30% did exist. So, you know, I'm semi-excited about this, but yeah, I see where it's coming from, but it, it's a positive move. I think the, the background to that as well is that um, a lot of the grain whiskey mash bills were based on uh, sort of uh, the brewing of um, a wash that was um, essentially going to go one of two ways, either to make grain whiskey or to make pots of whiskey. It was the same mash bill. And right. what, what was found was that um, with a with a, a limit of thirty percent, you were automatically limiting something that you didn't necessarily have to. But also, the guys were interestingly they came to the conclusion that in the use of green malt, which would be malt that isn't kiln dried, let's say, that you could have an excess of thirty percent malted barley in a mash bill if you're using green malt, and to, to insist on dry kilning that malt would actually be to insist on the use of ex- an excess of energy that you needed, that you didn't really need. And so, so the sustainability. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons. And again, that was agreed rather readily. Yeah. Labeling on it. Yeah, this is a, a new one. Okay, so I'll make a comment about this after. The labeling, packaging, advertising, or promotion of an Irish whiskey must not include a reference to any number if the reference to that number may create a likelihood of confusion on the part of the public as to whether the number relates to the maturation period of the Irish whiskey, blah, blah, blah. So what was the purpose of this and where did this get driven from? Well, one of the things with 
not just Irish whiskey, but with whiskey globally, is that there is a general recognition that an age statement on a label indicates a maturation for a certain period. And it's particularly um, well policed, for example, by by our Scottish friends. So, and and we would want that there is no confusion with consumers when a number appears on a label that the consumer might believe that that number refer, refers to years of maturation, aged whiskey. So, if it says fifteen on the label, does that indicate fifteen-year-old uh, whiskey? Because yeah. The research that we did, we did some research in some markets indicated to us that a majority of people did understand a number on a label being referencing the age of the whiskey that's been matured. So it's, it's with, it's something that we absolutely would like to make sure that there is no confusion with the consumer between aged and unaged product by use of numbers references, number references that can confuse consumers. Again, I'll come back to labeling, but I mean, um, and I won't make any comment about any particular brands here, but um, okay, so peated, I guess another one. As a consumer myself, when you see the word peated, uh, described as a peated whiskey, you kind of automatically assume that the grain is peated, which yeah. which is which isn't always the case, but so I, I guess that's just to address that. So it's basically saying peated can be used if the grain has basically been peated and has a peaty aroma, or it can be used in conjunction with cask or barrel if that flavour came about from a pre-existing whiskey that was peated. Here we're saying that in a circumstance where the mash bill included peated cereals then the word peated can be used to describe the whiskey. In the case where the peated nature of the whiskey came from the maturation period, that that would have to be featured on the label. It would have to be said on the label that this came from a peated cask or a cask that had previously had a peated whiskey. So it's a differentiate between the two. So I suppose at the very top it says the term can be used on condition. I suppose that should really be must. Well, if I mean, if somebody... If somebody wants to say the word peated, they can't unless it meets uh, conditions. Those two, those two conditions, and in, in the case of the second one, it must give reference to the past. Um, but if somebody doesn't want to mention peated, I don't think it's. My uh, understanding is it's not obligatory. Do you have to give the uh, origination of that peated uh, cask? Now you're asking me a detail that I don't know the absolute answer to. Possibly, but certainly you have to say that it was. Uh, in a cask that previously had peated whiskey. Okay. So Fine. I don't know. I don't think there's a requirement to say that. I don't think so either, but uh, I could be easily just as wrong. Uh, another one here, again, uh, it refers to, I suppose it was a, not a typo, but the fact that this may help accommodate particularly the smaller distilleries. So it, there's a reference to pot stills, uh, you know, as in plural of pot stills, whereas uh, you want amendments there that say in one or more pot stills, so you don't have to have two or three pot stills necessarily. And then uh, referring to the size, again, there was a bit of, I guess, open to ambiguity and also maybe favoring some of the bigger producers in the reference to the size of the pot still has been removed. Or yeah, and, and I think that was something that was 
you know, typically in large pot stills or something that was used yes. that way. It was an unnecessary uh, inclusion, I think, at the time, and everybody recognized that. And again, going back to the, the requirement to have three stills to make triple stills, it's not a requirement. Yeah. As long as distilled three times to call it triple distilled whiskey, it can go through one single pot still three different times. Color, again, this was one of those vague things. Basically, uh, I think this is basically saying that the color can pick up other hues due to the influence of the cast. So, cast yeah. doesn't have to be from pale gold to dark amber specifically again. Um, and again, you'd, you'd say as time has moved on, we've all started to mature and finish in different cast styles. You're getting very different uh, whiskey hues. Uh, yes. I, last, last Friday I was down in Dingle at the Dingle Whiskey Society and we had five whiskies for tasting and I, I just commented like look at these five whiskies five completely different colours completely yeah. different hues and all produced in, in Irish distilleries two different Irish distilleries all different ages all different types of whiskies well, um, we had one of yours last week the uh, the rouge of course yeah. which is almost uh, red and, and, and exactly the point I made at the time because I, I brought a bottle of rouge to that um, say, uh, tasting and I think that like the pinky hue that, that comes from that red wine uh, yes. the red wine glass is very significant so to 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 restrict the color by in the way that it was done in the original file was you know, certainly well intentioned um, and and seems to incorporate uh, uh, you know from pale gold dark amber a lot of different but it was required to include other hues you know yeah. out from the past. Okay, now what's the next one? Milling. So this is again one of the things that I mean. There's been enough. There are. You know, those that say the small distilleries and small producers are not, not getting a word in, I think a lot of the changes certainly benefit the smaller producer. And this is one of them now basically saying that the milling, basically the grinding of the barley uh, into a powder, is um, doesn't have to take place on site. So they can source milled barley or milled cereal. Yeah, and this has actually this was work that was done by the previous technical committee actually in the two years previous to that, um, and was um, agreed by the members and was agreed by the Department of Agriculture and Food, and so it wasn't something that was subject to the technical file discussion, but it was felt that it should be formally put into the technical file so that it would be understood and written down and recognised. Um, and and you're right, it, it is it is. Um, recognition that for a small distillery operation to be involved in different types of um, uh, milling or milled, milled grains, they might have to have more than one mill. And that yeah. actually could be really expensive for them. So uh, that was a recognition that for membership. And, you know, it, it, what, you just, what you said there, um, people will say it's about the big companies and all that. You know, we need to really recognize that the big companies have one vote each, and the small companies have one vote each. And in the 15 companies that sat on this uh, committee for the technical file review, there were three votes from big companies and there were 12 votes from small companies. You know what I mean? I think just, and and therefore, it's something that is a little bit frustrating for me when I hear people saying the Irish Whiskey Association is about the big companies. The Irish Whiskey Association is very much about the small companies. And if yeah. I was to just explain something to you, that in all the webinars 
that we did in the last year. And, and our own company was involved. We had our East African manager talk about the opportunity in Kenya and um, the, the, yes. the surrounding countries. And that was, if you like, the collegiality of us sharing our expertise in markets uh, with people who wouldn't have that expertise and who couldn't afford to pay for it. And that's what, you know, and then there will be smaller companies who will share their expertise with me in a way that I might know, not know tiny areas of, uh, you know, in, in investment requirements or uh, the, the use of crowdfunding, for example, that I've seen James and, and Elliot, James Darley and Elliot Hughes talk about how they funded. That's brilliant stuff that I wouldn't have had to be involved in as a bigger company. So that whole sharing of information and the collegiality thing we talked about is very much part of what we do, but it's very much not directed in favor of one size company or another. Yeah, no, and I think that's important that that message is you know shared with people because uh, I think very much it, you know we're, we're very very fortunate in that the the larger companies have recognized the fact that lifting the category as a whole. Is hugely significant for, for the for the industry, not just. A hundred times, uh, sir, just to you and to others, that what we need as an industry is for the young, the smaller companies to survive and thrive, because yeah. we want an industry that everybody is talking about around the world, where you can go to different parts of Ireland and see big and small distilleries and see huge and interesting distilleries and see distilleries that really step up to make top quality whiskey. In a bigger, in a bigger way, maybe like, like ours or in Middleton or Bushman's, whatever. So there's room for everybody. Not only is there room for everybody, I want, I personally want to see all of those guys. And I visited some recently, see them thrive because they're magnificent, uh, and uh, exhibitions of human endeavor of Irish people who have wonderful love for Irish whiskey. Yeah. And, and, and for me, that, that's, that's key. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, even in your, the association's discussions and the most, I mean, the diversity is hugely important. But I suppose one of the, and I guess I'm, I'm finished with this technical, uh, kind of, so let me just get this out of the way so we can see you bigger. So you really want see, And you can see me bigger, which nobody will want either. But, anyway, um, look, thank you for going through that. There were a couple of things there that I would have, I won't say they were left out, but there are things, I guess, that maybe need to be addressed. And, and things we hear a lot of concerns about, and, and I, I guess maybe labeling would be one of them. So in terms of um, coloring, in terms of, you know, whether the liquid was sourced and where it was sourced from. Now, I, I'm not a proponent of saying where it was sourced from, necessarily, but I'm certainly saying that it was sourced. And I know there are some developments going on in labeling at the moment. Can you fill us in on that? So, yes, I can fill you in, um, in the sense that there are different opinions on this and uh, significantly different opinions. I think where we should be coming from is that we don't want to confuse consumers and we want to be as transparent as we can possibly be. There might be a case for the transparency being aligned with the kind of transparency that is available for Scotland, for example. That's mm-hmm. a case that some people would say that we should be aligning ourselves with how the Scots do it. There's, there's that. There's the other point, which is that um, the Department of Agriculture and Food have become um, the monitors of, or the approvers of labels, the monitors of labels, etc., having taken over from FSAI uh, yes. on the 1st of January this year. And their interpretation of the EU spirit strength regulations 
uh, is different from what the Irish Whiskey Association's interpretations were. And so there's a, there has been a coming together of, let's see why we, mis- we interpret them differently. And, and where we're at now is we can't give, and the Department of Agriculture and Food can't give, a definitive, this is what you must do, because there are too many permutation combinations of people. So it's, a, it's in a roundtable discussion now, with lots of people feeding in on how they think this could be resolved, with a view to the consumer not at all being confused by things, and with a view to an understanding that the industry has developed and has evolved over the last 30 years in particular, 2010 even maybe, you might say. So people are sitting around the table to discuss, and indeed, you, you might say, well, what does agriculture and food want? And, and even agriculture and food now feel there's a need for more clarity so that we can say absolutely this is what is should happen in the future and, and that we would be aligned with that. that, and that and that's where it's at. There's a lot of people in discussion and don't forget we have DEFRA involved in the North. You know, we have the UK authorities involved in the North. So there has to be a lot of minds coming together on this to an agreed way forward. Uh, I've heard of a, an issue possibly about, uh, and this comes really from a Brexit issue, so, what are the implications of, of Brexit on any of these definitions uh, and recognition of the GI? There is none, actually. And the, good, the, the reason for that is that the, the British government, the Department of their DEFRA Department, has given in writing to the Irish Whiskey Association a recognition that the GI of Irish Whiskey will be recognized in all future trade deals that they do. Uh, that any trade deals that they will negotiate, Irish whiskey will be as defined by the GI and as recognized already. So that and is that both ways, John? So is the European Union recognizing product that is produced in the north as being uh, Irish whiskey and there are not any issues there in terms of blending with malt from up north? So the European Union are a bit harder on it than the British government. Yeah. Actually, the European Union are saying if it's from a different... If it's from outside the EU, then we need to look at it. So but we're in discussions with our colleagues in government in, in Dublin mm-hmm. and people within Spirits Europe and, and getting the commission to see that trade, that it's, it's about trade agreements rather than definitions. And it's about saying that if you're having, if you have a trade agreement with a country, um, uh, for example, you pick a country like Taiwan. I'm just picking a country off the top of my head. If you have a free trade agreement with Taiwan, um, and there's a, there's some whiskey that's in a blend that's come from another part of Ireland, yeah. then it can it be regarded as a full Irish whiskey. And the EU would be saying, well, can we stand over that as a full Irish whiskey or is there some part from outside the EU? And therefore, yeah. if the tariffs on products that are not from EU, should there be some tariffs applied to that? And that's in discussion, but it's only in the context of trade agreements, not in the context of the definition of the GI. Yeah, so it's not it's not a technical obstacle, but it, I mean, it, it does have duty implications. It could have big implications, but at the moment, it's only got implications in markets where Irish whiskey is not an established category. Okay. But that's, that doesn't mean that we're less serious about it. Yes. We are very serious about it. Um, uh, and it's even that's not 100% accurate because it could have implications in markets like South Africa, for example. Now, the, the, the tariff that would be applied would be not huge, 
so it shouldn't change the nature of the, the, the demand supply nature of Irish whiskey, let's say, in terms of it shouldn't away from it, but the principle wouldn't be helpful. Let's put it that yes. way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, other things then on labeling, is there going to be an insistence that, um, that it is sourced? A lot of discussion around this, and I'll give you an example. Um, so if you don't distill the, the spirit, but you do mature it, and you do yes. finish it, and you do bottle it, or if you do two of those and not of the other two, is that, is that sourced, is that produced by, is it produced for, etc., etc. So that's where I was saying there isn't an agreement yet on exact terminology. Because there's a recognition in the department now that there are different aspects to the production of Irish whiskey. So if you're producing vodka, it's in one end, out the other end, into a bottle. When you're producing Irish whiskey, so where do the main components of the production process lie? So where do the flavor components for Irish whiskey come from? You know, the, the, the debate is obviously around, is it from the grains? Is it from the distillation, from the, uh, the fermentation process, from the distillation process? Is it the congeners that follow all through all of that? Or is it how much influence has the maturation procedure? So if you're spending all your life maturing whiskey that you source from a distillery, then are you, or if you, or if you distill your whiskey, but you don't mature it, mature it by somebody else somewhere else, does that mean that it's, you know, you have to put that on the label? There's too many possibilities and combinations. Yeah, there's a lot of permutations, sir. But I'm yeah. thinking from a, and I'm trying to think from a consumer point of view, John, and I'm trying to see from, yeah. from their point of view as opposed to, I yeah. mean, I, I get it from a producer's point of view. Is it perhaps overplayed or overthought of that if it is known to be sourced, do you think people will think lower of the product? Not necessarily, but they're, it's the it's the the point of the of the people who who own the businesses and they're saying so i do an awful lot for this spirit when it comes Mm. to me i I give it the character that it has i give it the flavor profile that it has how can you say that i'm not the producer how can i say i'm not the producer so it's that is the the tension against which and then there'll be some producers who are producing for people and they don't want necessarily want their name on the bottle because it's you know I get that I, I get that so I mean we take yeah. aside the the naming of the brand because obviously you have yeah. to protect your own integrity you can't be responsible necessarily yeah. for what happens down the line whether you butcher a, a spirit or not but I mean just to say maybe uh, you know produced using source spirit something yeah. it doesn't have to be elaborate but calls uh, I've seen but. Yeah, I'm sure it'll get all ironed out over the next... Uh, I presume that's going to be a long discussion, John, isn't it? It is a long discussion, and it's one that we're actively involved in, and it's one that we're open to complete and transparent discussions with the department on this. It's not one we're running away from. It's not one we're hiding from. But within our membership, there are differing, significantly differing views on this. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, what we all want is an agreed understanding of what any terminology we use means in a way that the consumer will understand. And will will the consumer's opinions and thoughts be considered by the government in in that as well? I know, obviously, producers are, but is there a voice for the consumer heard in in those discussions? So if I was to say to you that the, the guys who met with the FSAI initially in the couple of years ago were astonished that 
the one thing that the FSAI didn't take into account was the producer. It was all about the consumer's opinion. It was not, there was no consideration of you as yeah. a producer, of the intricacies of the whiskey industry or the different stages, etc. So it was all about the consumer. And that's very much followed through by the guys in, in part of agriculture and food. So I, I would not worry about the consumer's interest here um, because, sorry, not that I would, I, I, I wouldn't worry that yeah, they're not represented. They're very much represented, very, very much represented, and rightly so. At the end of the day, we've had this discussion. If we lose our consumer, then it's not enough for the readers of Irish Whiskey Magazine. I, I've always used this example. Uh, that mm-hmm. the, the readers of Irish Whiskey Magazine wouldn't have put four expensive kids through college for me, and they, and they won't pay the salaries of the many thousands of people who are working in the industry because we, readers of Irish Whiskey Magazine, are... Um, you know, we're, we're a narrow group, a small group of people who love Irish whiskey, but we don't drink the bulk of it. So the consumer that Joe Blogs on the streets don't buy has to be happy. Yeah. I, I just think, it, yeah, it's certainly something that is becoming more, and it's not only in whiskey, of course, you know, people want traceability of everything, uh, you know, they want to know where your beef is from and, and everything else. But um, you have recommended the whole group in, in reaching the consensus that they did in a relatively short period of time, I have to say, from the beginning of the year to now, in a very different, uh, in very difficult circumstances, or maybe that helped focus the mind as well. The guys who sat on that committee worked really hard, no Sweeney, put them into shape. Uh, you know, the guys from Middleton were brilliantly participative. You know, people like Peter Mulrine uh, on it, you know, the guys from Liberties, you know, guys from teams everywhere, you know, they've all, I don't want to be naming it, but all participating with a view to arriving at a document that stood up, that stood up in terms of its integrity and represented across the views across the board. And it was a unanimously approved document, all those guys. So full marks to them. I wasn't on that committee, as I say, they wouldn't let me in, but they, 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 they conduct themselves brilliantly. Uh, and yeah. I no, I, I think uh, they have to be hugely commended and congratulations. And, and of course, those that have done the research and those that have uh, helped participate in it all. But it's great now we potentially have a new technical file. I'm, I'm thrilled to be. Yeah. What, what the one challenge I think is, I mean, Postel is, we, we, we highlight is uniquely Irish, but it's been a very difficult process to share the message of what Postel Irish whiskey is. Are we now in a situation where, because it's even more diverse, there's more possibilities, more combinations, that we have an even more challenging role? And and is there something in place to address that? So, let, let's say this. The fact that we have a pastel category that will be more embracing of tradition, more embracing of innovation, offering different flavor profiles for different reasons, has to be a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. I give my big competitor in Middleton, Irish Sisters, you've got to give them huge credit. They have done fantastic work in producing wonderful pots of whiskies and in marketing them to the world very well. So we have got we have got from them very fertile ground for development of this category. And we're all of us, let's say, as, as an industry, uh, we're all significantly blessed that we have yeah. that fertile ground in which to work. And so I'm not worried that it in any way does anything apart from gives us even more opportunity. What I would say is that there's still the consumer 
doesn't understand hot still whiskey. The consumer, I promise you this, you talk to the average consumer, we do a lot of research and insights yep. type search. You talk to the consumer about single malt scotch. They know they like it. They know the brand they like, but they don't know what it means. They do not know what it means. And you talk to any of your friends who are not interested in whiskey and ask them, do they know what single malt means? They don't know. Yeah. Now, but they'll want it and ask oh, them. Absolutely, they'll want it, which is fantastic. So they, the opportunity to talk about uh, pot still whiskey is there for us all. It's even more diverse than it was. And therefore, the marketing of the idea of pot still whiskey in the way that you know people have said, will it be the Irish version of Scotch single malt? Hopefully. And it's going in that direction. And it might even be more significant. Who knows in the future? But it's, it's, mm-hmm. uni- it's unique to us. It's something we value and protect. We nod to the lads in Middleton and we say, and the rest of us now can benefit from that. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. I don't think it's an understatement to say that uh, they've played a hugely pivotal and significant role in, I would say, protecting something that could have been lost and also engaging now to, to diversify it even further. So, um, yeah. I mean, there is one side, there are two sides to it. One is the, the fact that we are truer to our tradition definition is more accurate to what it should be but it also gives us the opportunity for more innovation going forward now uh, we've talked about innovation i think john ourselves many times and, and you know you can innovate with being uh, innovate and produce something rubbish as well so I, I guess that's one concern i would have to lag is that you know because there are so many possibilities now, we could end up matching, uh, you know, smoked salmon with crispy fries or something. You know, it, it's almost uh, so. I, I guess there's some care that's needed there. But um, yeah, what what else is there likely to to be of interest? Then do you think with this technical file that, that needs to be addressed? I, do you think if that's it, that's pretty much everything covered? I think it is. I mean, the lads spent a lot of time on it. There was a lot of build up to it. There was a lot of um, you know, talk and um, between social media and and other ways by it, people who had Irish whiskey's interests at heart, who weren't mm-hmm. sitting on committees in the Irish Whiskey Association, who felt this needs to be addressed. They were listened to, heard, and um, some sat on the committee and were you know had an opportunity, a good platform to to voice the sense of lost opportunity or missed opportunity or future opportunity to be to be uh, pounced on. And I think we've got to that point then. That was, was one, obviously, and a, a key one, maybe the key one. And, but the others were brought into the fold as well. And said, now that we're here, let's look at everything. So we don't have to revisit this every two years. But you know, Sergius, in seven years' time, somebody might say, wait a minute, seven years later, we maybe need to relook at this. And No, and I think that's important to, to point out as well, John, that uh, the technical file is a live, breathing document that... that must adapt, and I think the GI allows us to evaluate the technical file, like you said earlier, without making too many significant changes. Yeah, so I think it's important that we keep looking at. I wouldn't like to see the technical file having to change in a couple of years so quickly, but uh, look, it, it may arise. You know, I, I may find a recipe of using quinoise, you know, or rice or something somewhere. But you know, these things are are meant to evolve. I think that's what makes the Irish whiskey category. And for me, the importance of the change is the fact that we are willing to adapt and diversify even further than we have uh, and to take on something that gives us more permutations. But, but the, 
the ability to be able to adapt. I mean, we're opening up on our cast definitions and maturation and so forth. It's a huge opportunity. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely, completely agree. Um, I, I don't think we should seek to change the technical file whenever it suits us. I think we should do what we just did now, which was incorporate every possible view, you know, review and respect the historicals research that was done and recognize the integrity of that with a view to informing the document. So, yeah. and, and, and if there's another phenomenal Connor who's going to annoy the hell out of me in seven years time, <laughs> I'm prepared to listen to him, to him because if he's as good as phenomenal is, then, you know, we're, we're all going to listen. So, you know, absolutely, uh, it, it, we're in a situation where we have um, a document now that stacks up and if, it, if, if that it does, we should be prepared to allow it to breathe and to allow it to live and allow Irish whiskies to do the same. I think there's a question here from Frank, and I think you kind of answered it by pointing out the importance of the GI. But he says, do we need to define styles rigidly or just speak of Irish whiskey and let each distillery tell their own story of process and flavor? You know, I think what we're trying to do is probably a little bit of both. In order to have GI status, and, and that gives us huge access to markets and yeah. protect us against counterfeit whiskies, for example, in, in the biggest Irish whiskey markets in the world, we're protected because of what we've done here. So we have to have rigid definitions in the sense that people reading it will say, that's worthy of a GI. Being worthy with GI, it's worthy of protection, and people can't mess around with the category. It doesn't take away from the distilleries, different distilleries' requirement, opportunity, and even the beauty of distillery telling its own character. Because you, you know, within Scotland, single malts are very rigidly defined in the single malt category. But my goodness, there's a range of single malts in Scotland, and the Frank, I'm sure, knows that are so wide and so far-reaching in, in flavor profile terms that it doesn't hold it back. So I think you can do both. I'd argue that, you know, we have even more possibilities to be more diverse uh, and for distilleries find their own niche now with this new amendment. So And many, and many of them are also doing that already and finding yeah. a way of doing their things. And when you sit with the different distillers or, or the people who are involved in maturation from distillers, it's, it's inspiring to hear about you know, what they're thinking of, what they're planning, what they're looking at. And uh, I was with the guys from Eckenville uh, on, on Friday and they were talking about uh, Palo Cortano cask. I'm saying, okay, that's something that's really interesting, you know. So everybody has will, will have its own signature stuff. No, I think so, yeah. And there's more There's more space in there now. Look, um, look obviously, the star of the show, I guess, has been the, the possible definition. But there are other ones in there that are pretty pretty important, especially for some of the smaller ones. And what I like is that some of the vagaries, like uh, some of the very general terms that were used in the depth, in the, that are used in the technical file are, are hopefully going to be addressed as well. So I, I didn't include those because uh, there were quite a few of them and they were a little bit boring. But, you know, particularly and usually or typical described in there, uh, the very yeah. vague terms. So Yeah, and I think those those type of things have been largely taken out where where they yeah. where they didn't recognize reality um, or historical significance. Take away from the technical there just for a moment, I want to discuss um, the trade war possibilities or the trade wars uh, that were 
in danger of happening with the US. Are, are they gone now under this new government? Well, um, they're not completely gone, as in there's still the possibility that they could be resurrected and certain hoops have to be gone through. I mean, what we know is that the trade wars have nothing to do with Irish whiskey there. Yes. They're to do with um, Boeing and steel and aluminium, so the two separate trade wars. And the only thing is they come up for discussion uh, every so often. There's, I think there's one due actually... In, in the next two, two or three months, that needs to be defined mm-hmm. and finally agreed. It was the, the final agreement on it was postponed to December, as far as I know. Um, and, and you know, there, there's a great, as I understand it, there's a great interest both sides of the Atlantic to get these things resolved. But they're they're complicated. They're not, you know, straightforward. Yeah. Um, and when the WTO gets involved, there's um, there's all kinds of potential fines and sanctions, etc. So um, nobody wants to be fighting. And I think with you know, to look to the US now, there's a there's a greater sense of we need to get this resolved. It's not that they're less nationalistic about it, because in fact Joe Biden comes from part of the world where steel and aluminium are very important. So he's not going to and his the workers in that industry are very important to him, so it's not going to be an easy fix. But there's a general I think from what I hear, there's a general sense of we need to solve this rather than we need to stand off against each other. I think one of the, the big things, if, if you're going to be, you still got a year and a bit to go, though. So I'm not saying, you know, no, what I don't want to do the next year and a bit. Like, you're going to go back to Portugal and Lyon. That's going to end up doing some work for grants and get back to travel. At some stage, at some stage, the Tullamore Jew team are going to want me to do some work for them. But uh, no, look, I'm very lucky in that uh, I work for a company that allows me the time to take time for the Irish Business Association. The company, to be fair, recognizes the significance of what the Irish Whiskey Association does for the industry because the company knows the Scotch Whiskey Association very well and they know the importance and significance of that to the industry in Scotland. And so they more than encourage me to to, to work at this and do whatever I have to do. Um, I am very lucky with the Tullamore Jew team that I work with in terms of the marketing team and production team. I have to give due recognition to Kevin Piggott. It does a lot of the heavy lifting now in terms of the... Uh, the, the, the promotion and advocacy type work that I would have spent a lot of my time doing. Um, so give a nod of, I sometimes slag him off, but in fact, give a, a nod of appreciation to him. And I'm very lucky in that sense. And look, the other thing is that I'm trying to do is to get around to different distilleries that I haven't visited yet and spent some time. And in fact, last week I, I, uh, I was down in Dingle, but I was also down in Blackwater Distillery and had a lovely look around there with Peter and seeing what he's doing there. So, I'm, I'm trying to get a bit of that done on a regular basis so that I'll see people not just through Zoom but, uh, or through virtual meetings, but I'll have to actually see them in their place of worship and, uh, and I'll kneel at their altar and pray yeah, with them. Teach their ideas. and uh, Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. I'm writing notes after everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, what's going to be the reaction, do you think, from uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association in what we're doing? To, do you see them the starting to amend their technical files? Uh, they have done that already. They, they've had reviews of their technical files themselves uh, in the past. So um, what we would be doing would be not, not not only not be a surprise to them, they would be, you know, recognizing of the need for that, for the allocation. So they've done that. Yeah. And we're very lucky. I mean, I'm very lucky. I work with people in, in Scotland who are very close to the Special Risk Association. So do I pick their brains or do we compare notes? Uh, probably the latter. You know, we compare mm-hmm. notes and um, it's, it's helpful to understand. We don't, we certainly don't follow what they do in terms of copying them, but we follow the thrust of what it is 
for them are the, are the important issues. And, and, and for them, you know, the, the, the tariffs, U.S. tariffs were hugely significant. For us, they were significant, but particularly for the Northern Ireland Whiskies. But generally, we, we got away with too, too much trouble, you know. So, so yeah, we, we're, we know them well, very well, most of them. Can I ask you, um, since you're obviously you'll be taking a bit of a breather, when is the visitor centre opening up in Tullamore? Ah, I can't tell you, that's a secret. But probably in the new year. Um, okay. it's, it's entirely possible that somebody uh, very important like yourself might get a visit uh, to see it before Christmas. But um, okay. I think it would be the new year for where there's enough of work being done at the moment. And again, Kevin is heavily involved in this. Kathy, who you know, is heavily involved. Yep. Um, so um, they're working really hard at getting the final um, sort of the, the agreed design fi- uh, finally uh, implemented and, and, and operational. But there will be a bit of time needed to debug the system, etc. So I suspect in December we'll be maybe having a look at the we think, and then probably in the new year it'll become open to to consumers instead to enthusiasts. Yeah, I, I told you way more than I should have told you there because I said Yeah, it, yeah, we've kind of got a timeline. I was I was hoping yeah. it would have been the summer, but we'll we waited this long but they regularly forgive the old guy for putting something to those stalls. Well yeah I don't know. I, I think it's great. I think um, it was great that the uh, the industry, the association, the consumer had somebody with, um, I dare say so, the statementship uh, and the approachability that was required in a very challenging time. The lines on not just saying. Well, I, I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, no. Look, I think it's been fantastic what's what's happened. Uh, obviously, this has been big news. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what the fruits of all this hard work are going to bring. But it can only be positive. And um, one thing I do want to do, and one thing I love doing, talking to you for, is when you say goodbye because you give the best toasts of anybody. So perhaps before you go, you might terrible. give us a nice toast. I've learned toasts from the likes of Piggish. You know, he teaches, and, and in fact, some of the toasts he teaches me, I could not repeat on. All right, okay. Global television, younger generation, you know. Yeah, please. And I, I keep saying, don't say that one. And of course, because I say it, he does, you know, and embarrasses the hell out of me. But anyway, here's cheating, stealing, fighting, and drinking. If you cheat, may you cheat death. If you steal, may you steal a heart. If you fight, may you fight for a brother. And if you drink, may you drink with me. Slodger. Slodger, John. Thank you very much. Congratulations to all the team, everybody that was involved. And thank you for explaining everything so well and so clearly for all of us. I always enjoy the crack. Thanks very much, Slancha. Thank you very Thanks much. Very we'll talk bye soon. Bye. Enjoyed the show. I hope it gave a bit of transparency and a bit of a eye-opening as to what is possible and what could come down the road. I think, you know, it's been a really tough year to get through and produce the amendments. Hopefully they'll be a, a listened to. I know there are other bodies that will have their own opinion on things. I think collectively we're, we're in for a really exciting future and I'd like to thank John, the team, Everybody, I suppose the credit, of course, must go to those that have been big proponents of these changes, no more so than Fiona O'Connor, of course. But, you know, I mentioned a few names. We'll be covering the technical file, the amendments in the new issue as well, beginning of November. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Take care. and so much.